Welcome to the first episode of Marginalization and Mental Health. I'm Ryan. I'm Emily. I'm Kiana. And I'm Joel. We are high school interns at the Center for Civic Engagement at Lick Wilmerding High School. Our podcast aims to examine the link between marginalization and mental health. For our first episode, Emily will be interviewing Dr. Young and Yuka Hachiyoma, two counselors at our school. We'll be looking at how various forms of marginalization impact access to mental health resources. We hope you enjoy listening. Hi everyone, I'm here with Dr. Young and Yuka from the counseling department. Could you guys introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do at Lick? Okay, I guess I will go first. <laughs> My name is Yuka Hachiyuma. Um, I have students call me Yuka and I am a counselor at Lick. And hi, my name is Nikia Young. I go by Dr. Young, um, and I'm the Director of Counseling here at LIC. Great, thank you. So um, the topic of today's episode is going to be about lack of access uh, for marginalized youth when it comes to mental health resources. So, um, So in our group's research, we found like a lack of diversity in therapists and psychiatrists. So kind of like a lack of um, therapists of color and a lack of like queer therapists. So how do you guys think that affects like the overall mental health and like their willingness to reach out? So I'll jump in if that works for you, Yuka. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, What a great question, Emily. Thank you for this. You know, it's interesting. It is an issue that comes up um, when we are looking for referrals for students um, or when people from my life ask me for referrals. Um, I always have to dig deeper to find um, therapists from diverse backgrounds, um, be it um, like gender identity, sexual orientation, race, ability status, Um, it's really a challenge. And I will say that um, in addition to there being the challenge in terms of like, you know, when you're a client um, or a potential client looking for someone, um, it is also a significant issue that is um, in this additional wave of racial reckoning that we're in that is very up in, communities of clinicians and in training that the training is substandard and in order to get through a program, um, marginalized potential clinicians, students have to um, face a lot of difficulty in terms of the constant stream of microaggressions in addition to education that is centered on the majority perspective. So um, it's interesting, the the issues that we see pop up, you know, when you're looking for your therapist come up when you're looking to become one, um, which certainly does not encourage folks um, necessarily to pursue or stick through in, in the profession. And, um, you know, that, that lack of um, sensitivity and literacy with respect to equity that um, is, 
can unfortunately be pretty pervasive in many fields, including the mental health field, is definitely um, felt by clients, um, our students, and other individuals. And it is um, a significant barrier in um, accessing care for many individuals, or it means that folks do end up accessing care and it can sometimes feel like a care that gives with one hand and takes with the other. So certainly in our work at LIC, uh, we put an extra effort into supporting folks who are looking for a clinician and finding someone where it's going to be a give-give instead of a give-take. Thank you. I'd never thought of it like that. Um, Yuka, do you have anything else to add? Uh, well, I mean, I think Dr. Young covered, you know, everything really well, um, really speaking to um, essentially kind of, you know, workforce development, right? That like, mm -hmm. you know, why are there so few um, clinicians of color um, or, you know, kind of clinicians that um, have different identifiers? Um, and it really does kind of go all the way back to um, who gets interested in going into the field and then how does one navigate? Um, becoming a professional in the field. So she's definitely done a wonderful job of speaking to that. Um, I think the only thing that I would add um, is really um, the importance um, that Dr. Young, you know, spoke to of, um, you know, students really finding someone that feels like a good fit. And oftentimes that does have to do with um, who's sitting across from them and, mm -hmm. you know, how much the, that person can relate to the experiences that the student is um, needing to share and needing to work through. Um, and so that is definitely something that um, we often think about um, in our interactions with students and also when we want to you know, offer them outside support. Um, and yes, it's definitely a challenge to find someone who's a good fit, but I think we always say, you know, and make sure you know, that it is a good fit also understand the potential harm that could come from someone um, kind of staying in therapy with someone when it feels like, oh, you know, there's just something that's not working. Um, mm -hmm. and that might have to do with the fact that, um, you know, the experience is like, you don't understand, you know, where I'm coming from in my experience. Um, so, yeah. you know, if, if students ever encounter that, I, I feel like as hard as it may be, it's really important to actually address that um, with the person that they're working with, because hopefully the person can be um, kind of mindful enough to really have an authentic conversation about that, because it will impact um, how much, you know, someone can get out of their therapy otherwise. Hmm. May I piggyback on that? Um, it's such a pleasure to work with Yuka. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, I, I, I always love the way that you put things and um, if I can, if I can add to that, I would also just offer us um, if you find that you are um, not being seen or not being heard in your identity, um, and you're finding yourself feeling hesitant to speak directly to that person, we're also available to you mm -hmm. for consultation. Um, it is sometimes the case that we don't want we don't necessarily want you to be the person that um, a professional learns on. Mm. Um, so uh, if you are not 
finding your identity validated, that is one of the core things that is supposed to happen for your healing. Um, so by all means, um, seek us out. We are there to support you in that. And um, interestingly, uh, just a, a, a quick vignette, I, I recently um, started consulting with a colleague who's writing a book on the intersection of um, neuroscience and um, child development. It's a book for clinicians and asked me to consult on the pieces around race. And the thing that I found so interesting, very much to your excellent point and your astute question, Emily, is that um, what I saw so far um, is written with the assumption that the clinician is white. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I never, I had never really considered it from the like clinician's point of view. So thank you. And also, it's really nice to know that you guys are available. Um, and I think my next question is um, kind of talking about how um, marginalization affects mental health in general. So I'm kind of talking about like increased rates of harassment, increased rates of like sexual assault, perhaps like racial trauma. Um, and, and of course there's like an increased rate of bullying and suicide, especially in LGBTQ youth. Um, so what are your thoughts on how that might affect people's willingness to reach out? If I may, um, what comes immediately to mind for me is um, the bind that we find ourselves in when we are marginalized or oppressed people, right? Which is um, that we need to reach out for healing and support and care. And at the same time, we know that those systems are compromised and that there is some probability, sometimes lower, sometimes higher, that we're going to encounter harm when we're seeking out healing. Um, so there is that um, highly adaptive and appropriate um, hesitation that, that folks sometimes experience, um, that lack of trust that is sometimes attributed as paranoia. Um, so there is, um, you know, a pathologizing of something that in my view and in the view of, you know, many, many who are, are contributing to the literature, that that is an important self-protective mechanism. And it's important to listen to one's heart and to one's, and to one's gut. Um, so yes, it is an unfortunate barrier and it is there. I heard you speaking, Emily, to um, the effects of being a denigrated, um, part of a denigrated group where one's humanity is devalued and um, it leaves people open to targeting for um, explicit macroaggressions uh, that, you're, that you named. Um, as well as the microaggressions that may be um, conscious or maybe unconscious. Um, so yes, um, 
being a member of an oppressed group is a source of cumulative traumatic stress in the psychological literature that used to be called minority stress. So there's a nice euphemism. It's about being a minority rather than about the oppression um, that is out there. I'm going to pause um, because I'm sure Yuka has a wealth of beautiful thoughts to share with us. Um, well, I, I do think you've covered it, um, Dr. Yang. I mean, I, I think it's, there's definitely a lot of evidence and research that's been done, you know, speaking to um, the cumulative impact that microaggressions have. And then, of course, you know, when there's something much more overt, um, the macroaggressions that Dr. Young mentioned, then um, it's, fairly, it's clearly linked to trauma. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, it's all in the mix, unfortunately. And um, I mean, it's understandable, right? If someone is wary about seeking out services um, <clears throat> to get support around that very issue, if there is worry that there will be more harm done than um, help offered. Thank you. We also considered some more like maybe explicit barriers to receiving mental health. So we kind of focused on poverty and then maybe like location and stuff like maybe a language barrier um, and citizenship status, access to health insurance, stuff like that. Right, like the very kind of concrete, tangible reasons why it's very hard to access services. Um, I think this question, Emily, really makes me think to the work that I used to do, which is in community mental health. Um, and so, you know, all of the clients that I worked in, uh, with in that setting, um, these are the barriers that people are dealing with on a daily basis. Um, it certainly isn't a perfect system. Um, I would say though that San Francisco and the Bay Area does have um, more services than other parts of the country, which is, um, I think it really comes down to, it speaks to the lack of funding um, and therefore perhaps the lack of priority that um, we as a country place on mental health and well-being. Um, but unfortunately what that means um, concretely is that you know people, struggle to access services that match um, their language background um, that are actually accessible location-wise, so it's near their homes. Um, and then there's also kind of very basic needs that need to be met around, you know, when you um, don't have um, financial resources, uh, what other services in addition to mental health services are available. Um, that's a really important, like there are case managers that often work alongside um, clinicians because, you know, I mean, I can't remember in what context I saw this, but someone was saying, um, you know, that I don't have mental health issues, I'm just poor. Um, and, you know, I think the, the stressors of um, not having financial resources um, definitely need to be addressed um, in addition to any mental health needs that exist. Um, and then immigration status is also um, an enormous barrier um, when people are afraid um, to expose themselves potentially um, in order to get help. So yeah, I mean, you've, you've identified you know, the, the main reasons why um, it is so hard to uh, connect people to services that they are desperately needing. Mm -hmm. I think that's so well said. 
And um, it, it brings to mind for me the ways in which um, structural, institutional, and individual level um, oppressions interact with one another. Um, so just structural, like on the level of, um, you know, macro societal forces, government, education, economics, psychology, culture, the institutional, the, the policy and practice and in institutions such as schools, hospitals, governmental institutions, and then the personal, which we've spent a little bit more time on um, already in terms of um, explicit and implicit bias socialization and um, the ways in which um, all of these at each of these three levels, if this is the way that you know one is conceptualizing it, these three um, pressures or levels of marginalization push folks who are already marginalized toward further marginalization, which is how we end up seeing, um, you know, like language, location, poverty, race, um, ability status, we start to see these things layering on top of one another and intersecting with one another um, just also comes to mind. And an example that is a little bit nerdy, but I think really interesting is um, just the idea of microaggressions, which is uh, popularized in, in recent years. People are often surprised to learn that um, that's a 50 year old concept. The term microaggressions was coined in 1970 by Chester Middlebrook Pierce, a black psychiatrist, talking exactly about the ways in which um, individual level racism intersects with and reinforces structural um, racism and oppression and leads exactly to what you're asking us about, um, Emily, which is the, the cumulative effect of the microaggressions and the cumulative traumatic stress. Thank you. I had never thought about how like the like it could kind of lead to further marginalization and kind of like a snowball effect. Also, I had no idea that marginalization was coined such a long time ago. Um, and I think something you said earlier about, I think like the term minority stress also made me think about like how the language of mental health has kind of historically been used to discriminate. For example, I know that mm -hmm. um, homosexuality was like coined as like a mental disorder and I still hear people making claims that being trans is some kind of mental illness. Mm -hmm. so could you tell me more about that? Yes, you're so on point with that, Emily. Um, it is a fact. Homosexuality used to be in the DSM, so that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, so yes, uh, the mental health field is... Um, in many ways built on a history of um, really homophobia, transphobia, racism, sexism, um, really, what is it, just um, ableism. Um, there's a lot. So all of the, all of the oppressions that we find everywhere are also in 
in the mental health field. Um, I, I, I got so excited about your question, to be honest. Um, I, I, lost, I lost track of what I was going to say. I'm going to pause for a moment and I will promise to jump back in if it comes back to me. Yeah, I, mean, I think it just speaks to the history of, um, you know, marginalized groups and the ways in which those groups have been oppressed and, um, and, and the evolution of, you know, once um, there is more advocacy um, that mm -hmm. changes are made over time. And so the um, DSM that Dr. Young referenced um, is um, the book that, you know, clinicians use to diagnose uh, mm -hmm. And um, there's been many kind of versions and iterations of it because it has changed quite a bit over time. And I'm not enough of a historian to know exactly, but um, I think if you look at the first version, now we have DSM-5 as the current one. Um, it has changed so much because I think it reflects um, the cultural understanding of mental health um, and what you know, should be classified as a mental health disorder and what should not. Um, and so it's constantly evolving, certainly. Yes, and if, if I can jump back in, thank you for that, Yuka. Um, what, this, what this brought to mind was um, another podcast that I was listening to um, within the last several days um, about, it's, it's basically following what's happening in the Supreme Court um, and cases that are being heard or are on their way there. And um, I was listening to a recent episode about um, conversion therapy. I don't remember where it was located. So conversion therapy um, is uh, basically when a so-called mental health clinician is uh, trying to convince someone that they are in fact not um, the gender that they are and that they their sexual orientation is actually not um, there. So it's an invalidation of one's um, gender identity or sexual orientation. And um, it is widely recognized um, as deeply harmful, which probably um, fits with the intuition of the majority of the listeners. And um, there is a case where um, some folks are trying to sue and say that um, not being able to engage in conversion therapy is a violation of their First Amendment rights. And so for me, um, that not only speaks to the importance of language, but also again to the intersection of um, individual level um, bias and oppression, and then also um, the structural and the institutional pieces. So how does um, policy relate as well as the, the functioning and the health of our governmental institutions impact the care that um, individuals, some of whom may be our students, receive on the ground. Thank you. I had never thought about how like the different editions of the DSM could kind of track our like views on mental health as a nation. I think that's really interesting. And I also wanted to bring up how 
our core identifiers also affect our like views on mental health, like how some groups might have higher, like more stigma than others? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think definitely there's a strong um, cultural component to that. Um, and that can often be a, another less concrete, but like, you know, a, a very significant barrier to someone receiving um, treatment. Like, you know, I, I've always worked with young people, but um, oftentimes it might be that the parents, um, you know, don't see um, therapy and the need for mental health services in the same way as um, their child, because, you know, perhaps the child was born here, um, you know, and the parents are immigrants and their cultural background, you know, um, there is a lot of stigma around mental health and receiving help outside from the family. Hmm. Again, I, I think that that's, that's an excellent point. And it's, it's so interesting to me, um, you know, when I take part in these, in these conversations with other clinicians, um, just in different professional circles, and um, I, we sometimes hear people talking about um, resistance to engaging in care um, and the cultural components. And it's, it's, it's interesting because it seems to me that across cultures, across the world, there is an understanding of a need for connection, a need to be seen, a need to be heard, a need for healing. Um, and it's often the case that um, the form or the package that that is coming in um, isn't necessarily a good cultural fit. And so for me, that raises the question as to the responsibility that those of us have who you know, profess, profess to be in the, in the practice of healing to um, develop our own knowledge and our own competence so that we can build those connections, um, those healing connections and um, make healing offerings in the form and the, you know, if you can permit me the metaphor, like the language um, that fits for the people who um, might be seeking it out or would be seeking it out if it felt um, like it was attuned and respectful to their needs and to their worldviews. Right, which definitely kind of goes, circles back to Emily's original question, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. So my last question is, um, how have you seen these issues manifesting in the lit community? For instance, do you see that some groups are more willing to accept counseling than others or something like that? Hmm. You ask such wonderful questions. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I would say, Emily, for myself, um, that one of the things that can be um, really wonderful and in some other ways painful about working at Lick and perhaps attending Lick is that um, all of the beautiful things and all of the challenges that we see out in the world are present within our school community. So I would, I, I would say that um, in one way or another, I've seen everything that we've talked about manifest um, 
in our school. And um, what I have found is that um, actually in a way that is sometimes similar to, to the patterns of immigration that we might see where somebody comes from a place and then because they have established roots in the place, um, other folks from their area are more likely to, to immigrate to where they, they went to. I, I see networks of folks reaching out for support. So across different groups and across different identifiers, um, it is the friends of people that I've met with mm -hmm. um, that uh, disproportionately seek out counseling. Okay, thank you. Um, Yuka, do you have anything to add to how you've seen it manifesting in the work community? I mean, I think, you know, once again, um, I think Dr. Young did speak to the fact that, you know, the school is a microcosm of, you know, everything that we see out in the world as well. Um, and I am really curious, you know, that is a question that is always on my mind of mm -hmm. um, who is not reaching out to us? Who are we not able to connect with? And yeah. um, why, why? <laughs> like what yeah. is not happening and what can we do differently um, to be able to reach out to those who um, may feel hesitation um, mm -hmm. because of whatever concerns they might be, you know, holding about how we would um, respond to them and, and whether we are capable of really listening and, and seeing them. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly echo that. Awesome. Thank you. So that kind of closes out all of my questions. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. This was a really interesting discussion. Thank you for reaching out to us for this. Yeah. Yes. It's a true, it's a true pleasure. And I, I really want to just, again, appreciate you for reaching out to us and for your um, thoughtful commitment um, to our school community and to access and equity within it. And I guess I would like to add, Emily, um, it sounds like you're working with a group of students, but um, if that is a conversation that your group would like to have with us, because it does seem like you've done a lot of research about this topic, um, and maybe specifically how, um, as students, you're seeing it manifest at Lick. Um, I imagine, you know, I'll certainly volunteer myself, but, you know, Dr. Young and I would love to have that conversation to, yes, see, you know, like, what can we do differently um, mm -hmm. if, if we are not reaching everyone that we'd like to? Yes, we've definitely, yes. We're definitely thinking about that. We're planning to release more episodes, so everyone should stay tuned for that. But again, to all of our listeners, um, Dr. Young and Yuka are available to you and yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Marginalization and Mental Health. Be sure to stay tuned for more episodes about the intersections of identity and mental health. We hope you enjoyed listening and learning along with us.